When an agency management doesn't know what to do with someone, too often they put the employee on paid administrative leave. Despite a 2017 law designed to curb this practice, it still happens a lot, according to the group Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. For more on the findings, we turn to Peer Senior Counsel Peter Jenkins. Mr. Jenkins, good to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Tom. What made you look at this and what did you find? Well, what really drove us is is that Peer is an organization that provides pro bono legal representation for whistleblowers in federal environmental agencies and also state and local, I should say. But with the federal agencies, we've had several clients who were put on extended administrative leave without any guidelines, any boundaries on that administrative leave in a prominent case we represented a managing direct former managing director of an agency who was put on leave by his agency paid for three years which was extreme and of course it was tremendously stressful for him it's been stressful for other clients who've been in the same situation and it cost the federal government literally millions of dollars that we documented and it's not just us documenting that but GAO and others have done studies and looked at the data and realized it's costing the federal government tens of millions of dollars these extended administrative leave so the administrative leave is imposed if the agency thinks someone did something wrong but they don't know how to deal with the case or resolve it sounds like right and they're supposed to go to investigative leave after 10 days under the 2016 law that congress passed and then the investigative leave has limits but the problem is that the office of personnel management opm never followed through with the regulations that Congress directed it to issue that were to implement that law. And OPM was supposed to have issued those regulations in 2017, in September 2017. They did a draft, but they never finalized it. That draft was done back under the Trump administration. Biden administration has not picked up the ball and and done what it's supposed to do. Now it's been more than six years since those regulations were due. And as a result, the agencies themselves don't have the guidance that they need to to fully carry out what Congress told them to do in 2016. And you mentioned an agency managing director. So it's not just low-level people or functionaries that end up on administrative leave, but it sounds like a high-ranking official. Well, we had uh, another who was the uh, the head of the EPA uh, Children's Health Office, the, the head of the whole office, something like 17 employees. She was also put on extended administrative leave without explanation, which we claimed was illegal and are still claiming is illegal. Her case is still live. So we have had other clients, uh, you know, at different levels of the, of the government. And in fact, it's the higher level ones that tend to be more controversial and get extended out because the political appointees and others at the high levels don't want to deal with these uh, whistleblowers. That was my next question. Is it mostly whistleblowers that end up on administrative leave or can someone commit some other alleged misdoing. Well, certainly they can, but it's just a practical matter that peer represents whistleblowers. So we select clients who are the people who are stuck in that situation. So that's who we deal with. Now, there are other people who are put on administrative leave for all sorts of other reasons. And the general concern that Congress had in 2016 was that often they're just left there because it's convenient for the managers to to not deal with them, it's easier to do nothing as a federal manager than to actually tackle the issue. So it's costing taxpayers millions worth for the, this neglect. We're speaking with Peter Jenkins. He's senior counsel at the Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER. And in your recent release on this, you mentioned that some agencies do keep statistics on this like they're supposed to, including the National Park Service and some amazing stats on administrative leave there. Right. And this was after this 2016 law was passed. 
So in 20, FY 2018 through 20, there were a total of 260 person years, you know, valued to taxpayers in excess of $10 million of people sitting on administrative leave. Now, we don't know, obviously, every single one of those cases was about. Some of them could have been whistleblowers. Some of them could have been legitimate, but we, we don't know. So Congress wanted to, you know, get a handle on this issue. And that's why we've threatened to sue OPM if they don't issue the implementing regulations. And the regulations require agencies to keep these statistics. What else are they supposed to do under the law? Well, they're supposed to um, have very defined processes for uh, how administrative leave then shifts to investigative leave if the if the person's under investigation or if they're not sure whether they're going to put them on investigation. There's something called notice leave that has sideboards on it. So there's different categories of leave. Then the OPM is supposed to report on the total number of cases and the agencies are supposed to report. We have urged them to make that reporting more transparent, more public, posted on a OPM website. The other thing we have urged in our petition, since they haven't finalized the regulations and they're still mulling over what to do, we've said what we need to do is see some consequences for managers who abuse the law, who abuse the regulations. Because as I said, it's easier for managers to just put people on administrative leave and then not deal with them but that's a form of abuse if it goes on for too long and in violation of the law. So we want to see those managers subject to some potential consequences, such as um, the Office of Special Counsel, finding that, that that itself is a prohibited personnel practice that they can be uh, disciplined for. And just to look at this from a different angle, if someone feels, if an agency head feels that someone should be put on administrative leave, why don't they just fire them? Uh, well, uh, you, you can't just fire a civil servant. As you know, you have to go through the uh, you know normal process of issuing a notice of proposed uh, removal and then you know a final thing that that does take time. But this process that we're talking about is before they, they issue that sort of a notice. It's when they're investigating and deciding what to do. And so once they issue that notice, then you're under a different clock altogether. But if it's a matter of just investigating or, you know, just trying to decide what to do, that's what this Administrative Leave Act is about. Sure. And as you mentioned, someone on administrative leave for three years does seem not only excessive, but absurd. Anything more than a month sounds absurd if you're trying to find out what it is you need for fact-finding. I wonder... This is speculation, but if it is the political people, appointees, that put people on administrative leave, I mean, if you have an agency head or a bureau head, that would have to be a political appointee probably above that person to be able to put them on leave. They know they're on short time because that's the way of political appointments. And is it just a convenient way of kicking it into the next administration, if you will, or the next person that takes over? It can be, or, you know, in the Trump administration, it was often figuring out ways to get rid, rid of high-level people in the bureaucracy that they didn't like, that they wanted to sidetrack without without going through the hassle of, of proposing to, to fire them. So they just put them on extended leave. That was some abuse that happened under the Trump administration, as you probably know. Only the Trump administration? <laughs> no. Well, I shouldn't say only the Trump administration, but we had a lot more clients under the Trump administration. Let's put it that way. Got it. All right. So you're going so you have a lawsuit going. No, we filed this petition and we delivered it to OPM sixty days. Then we said if you don't issue these final regulations or otherwise guarantee that you're about to, then we will withdraw the petition and sue them. And we think there's good 
case law that agencies can be forced to issue regulations that they've sat on for for years, you know, years and years. When Congress directed them with a timeline, Congress said this should have been done by September of 2017. And do you have any feedback or any signals coming back at you from OPM that they intend to get on this? No, but we expect we'll hear from them. Peter Jenkins is Senior Counsel at Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Good to talk to you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I... I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking. 
that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people 
have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. 
This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.